The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. I was talking to these people that came in this morning from back east, and they said the government's coming back. Not that again. They say it's been slow, but things are going to start to improve around here real soon. We're going to have running water, power, everything we... It's just like you were saying about the government coming back. It's true. They've had the Red Cross sending in supplies for about six months now. Man, they got food, they got blankets, they got candy. Well, if they've been sending in all this stuff, how come we haven't seen any of it? Because Theo been grabbing it all. You are so full of it. Wait a minute. I saw a big truck going into Theo's place tonight, all covered with tarp so you couldn't see what was underneath it. Guards all over the place. I asked what was so important, and they said to mind my own business or I'd find myself dead. <gasps> the way I hear it, they've been bagging stuff earmarked for this whole town for months now. And now that they've got everything they need, they're going to steal the whole thing, split town, and sell it on the black market. Leave everybody here high and dry. I don't buy it. He's telling the truth. Had a guy come in here earlier from the Red Cross. Had ID and everything. Said they'd send him out here to check things out. Make sure the stuff was getting to the right people. Now all of a sudden, he's gone. Must have been that guy they jumped a little while ago. They took oh. him up to Theo's place. You know, this is all starting to fit. I was talking to a friend of mine up there. They got electricity now, guys. What? They got power, they got gas, and they got food. They've been robbing us blind. Welcome everyone. It is Thursday, June the 2nd, 2016. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, we're just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And welcome to the world of future rationing, or perhaps the future world of rationing. The poverty of being permanent have-nots, while the haves, the socialists and the communists and the fascists, just plain totalitarian dictators, ration our power, our medicine and health care, our education, our jobs and careers. And of course, under such conditions, any notions of freedom, capitalism, democracy, and all of their attendant consequences, individual rights, with its social quality of having the right to consent, will completely disappear. And, uh, you know, power to the politicians is the new war cry of the establishment these days, Robert. <laughs> power to the people has once again become power over the people. And I think we're both on to that theme today, aren't we? Yeah, I think we are, uh, our two topics will dovetail nicely, Bob. Okay, before we get underway, let's remind our listeners that they can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ at 5130 kHz, and on channel 292 at 6070 kilohertz. And, of course, you can always visit us at www.justrightmedia.org. 
Now, last week's show with Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever certainly generated its more than fair share of reactions, including, among others, Ontario Premier Kathleen Wynne's own public denial that her government planned to ban natural gas. Now, of course, part of the reason, and we know this, was that Freedom Party issued a media release in which FP leader Paul McKeever warned that politicized energy care was the hidden goal of the Ontario Liberal government's climate programs. The headline having been taken from our last broadcast of this show, and our show was linked to that media release. Uh, The media release was forwarded to every member of the Ontario legislature and to all concerned members of the media. And, here's interesting, it was also personally acknowledged as having been received by Ontario Premier Kathleen Wynne herself. And she happened to be in Edmonton, Alberta at the time, Robert. So within hours of our media release and hours after our show went online, Wynne issued a statement which denied that the Liberal Party had any plans to phase out natural gas from being used to heat Ontario homes, which is what we were saying on the show last week, uh, expressed in a way that might be misinterpreted as a guarantee that homeowners would not be forced to heat their homes uh, with electricity, which is not true, is it, Robert? (laughs) It doesn't seem that way, no. No. And she said, let me be clear, we're not banning natural gas and have no intention to force people off natural gas. She was quoted in the paper, and we'll hear her say that in her own words shortly. But, of course, right away, Paul McKeever tweeted to her, Oh, no ban, says Kathleen Wynne, because government will still generate home heating electricity with natural gas? And, of course, we haven't got an answer to that question as yet. She hasn't clarified the distinction. In fact, she has continued to promote her agenda, as originally reported. And the media has, by and large, now reported that Wynne has backed off from her plans to ban natural gas, when no such thing has actually happened. And since the government has all along planned to use natural gas to generate the electricity with which to heat homes via natural gas-fueled electricity generating plants, it can actually argue without, uh, shall we say, technically lying that natural gas will still be used to heat homes in Ontario. What a shell game this, this whole thing is reports the Canadian press, the criticism we have been getting is that we were going to be banning natural gas and that's not something we're doing, she said. And uh, after meeting Alberta Premier Rachel Notley in Edmonton, Wynne is now claiming that the original story about the natural gas ban, which was released by the Globe and Mail last week on Monday, is actually false. What I'm asking myself, Robert, is why did she wait until Thursday last week (laughs) to make this simple fact so public? Uh, We'll leave that for our listeners to decide. But in the meantime, we're still catching up with all of the feedback from many of you who wrote to us about this issue, and we'll be dealing with some of that. We we absolutely don't have the time to get it in all all today's show. But clearly, we did get one piece that I wanted to bring to everyone's attention because I think it strikes a chord with a lot of people, including, including a conversation you and I just had before we went to air, Robert. And this one came from a letter writer named, named uh, let me see if I've got, got him right here, yeah, Bill. And he read, read the uh, media release from Freedom Party and hopefully he heard the show regarding politicized energy care. And he wrote to us and said, Hi, this is far too complicated for Joe Sixpack to understand. What he wants is a Trump to run as an independent. People are sick and tired of every party, including the Freedom Party or any other quote-unquote party. That's why Trump has hit a nerve. 
He ran as an outsider and forced the party itself to follow him. Running as an independent in all ridings puts pressure on the PCs because it will split their vote. Don't forget about the fellow in BC who ran as an independent and won. He actually held a balance of power in the minority government, but unfortunately, died of cancer. The party syndrome is done both in Washington, in Ottawa, and Toronto. I've had my fill of parties and politicians. I, and many like me, want an outsider who can be politically incorrect. And that's from Bill. What do you think of that off the top, Robert? I think he's incorrect. I think there's something definitely to be said for and the necessity for political parties and a structure in political parties. And for somebody to come in and usurp um, a party, uh, buy memberships, and then just run roughshod over a political party's uh, basis of principles and policies is wrong. It's a fraud. It's a scam. I agree. And it's interesting you put that because that, that's not even an issue I'm planning to address. So I'm glad you brought that up. And it's quite true. We've, we've talked about that on the past. But I have to, had to agree uh, with our, our writer, Bill, that, that, that um, it might be too far and too complicated for Joe Sixpack to understand, uh, especially when you get into the details of these things. But the Joe Sixpack version of the story was in our show last week. I mean, we even picked simple things like Green Acres clips to demonstrate what these principles mean to Joe Sixpack in, in a way that he'll understand. Not to, not to say that no. Joe Sixpack is stupid. No, no. It's his attention. It's just, that, it's just that they have relegated the idea of politics to what they consider to be experts. They don't want to spend their time on it. You and I spend every sure. day on it. Exactly. Everybody doesn't have the time for, to understand the issues in the depth that we do. And, and the point is that once Freedom Party itself goes into its planks and platforms, they're going to be pretty simple, just like they were in the last election. Just one, one thought, one, one point to make, you know. Let's get that beer and wine in the grocery stores. How hard is that to figure yes. out, right? <laughs> so, but here's what's interesting, you know. On this show, you and I, Robert, and of course with Salim, our own discussions of the Donald Trump phenomenon um, certainly echo um, Bill's, Bill's sentiments, but you can never avoid the political party process, nor can Donald Trump, even if he stayed as an outsider, because it's the only means to organize an individual's vision into a political one that can be supported by a broad voting public. Outside of totalitarian dictatorship, and the irony of that is that requires political organization too, though perhaps without the necessity of political parties, uh, there's no other conceivable means of implementing a, quote, independent voice that is merely politically incorrect for its own sake. The cure would be worse than the disease. I can't think of a political party that's been more politically incorrect and is far more an outsider than Freedom Party. Can you, Robert? <laughs> <laughs> no. So, so Bill's attitude towards Freedom Party quite baffles me. You know, we've been the lone voices in fighting political correctness since Freedom Party's been founded and have devoted dozens and dozens of shows on Just Right over its many years to fight that very phenomenon. And ironically, that's why the university station CHRW suspended us from broadcasting there, because we were politically incorrect. And happily, we now found out, find ourselves broadcasting around the world and experiencing unprecedented increases in our listeners to just write online. So there you go. I think Bill has done an injustice to Freedom Party by saying it's the same as all the other parties. I sense his frustration, Bob. Oh, yes, I and do I too. empathize with him. However, I should say I sympathize mm -hmm. with him because I've been there. But I think that he may be right in that political parties as such, as an entity, 
has been sullied and are untrustworthy. Well, and it's our job to make sure that people know that Freedom Party is a party of uh, of a, a positive nature. Interesting. That's the next point Sorry, I address. Okay. Yes. No, but that's, that's a great point to make. I ask him, on what grounds can you make such an assertion that we're the same as the rest? Uh, you know, because it's not so, and we have a clear record of action going back all the way into 1984, right online. That's why we put it there. And if he, I ask him if he can see anything that contradicts what I'm saying, please bring it to my attention. But here is the issue, and you just t- touched on it, Robert. The problem in the U.S. and Canada today is not about party syndromes. It's about the communist and fascist ideologies that the current crop of parties are all imposing on the rest of everybody. Ideologies that are generally no different than the ideologies of most politically incorrect independents. That's the joke. None of them realizes that it's the communism or socialism that they espouse that's the real source of the problem. Many have legitimate reasons to fear that Donald Trump himself is among those ideologues. However, as Salim Mansour so correctly observed, whatever Trump intends for America, he will nevertheless have to work within party structures and abide by the political and constitutional processes in place. As to the independent candidate in B.C. that uh, Bill cited, he called him the fellow, what did he really win for the people? Just an election for himself? How did his victory ensure the betterment of the electors to this day? No independent is capable of doing this because, as Bill himself noted, they all die. And, you know, as do their ideas and their philosophies with them. And that is why it is necessary to have a political party and a body of knowledge to carry the right ideas forward into the future and and to the benefit of future generations to come. To borrow from Bill's own observation, politics is far too complicated to turn it into a short-term one-man show. So the fact that Bill did not cite, quote, the fellow's name or what he accomplished is another demonstration of why political parties are necessary, for identity, for distinctions that can be clearly understood, ironically, by the Joe Sixpack crowds, you know, because that's how they think. So, like Robert Bell, I sympathize but can't quite share your cynicism about Freedom Party, and I'm very sorry to hear you're in such pain and frustration over this. You're not alone. Hope you feel better soon. (laughs) Now, coming up on the other side of our bumper, the first voice you'll hear is that of Ontario's NDP MPP, Peter Tabins, in conversation with CJBK AM 1290's Andy Ootman, and whose climate change mantra is right in line with Kathleen Wynne and Patrick Brown. But first... Here's Ontario Premier Kathleen Wynne herself delivering her well-crafted untruth about her government's plan to phase out natural gas. I want to directly address the critics who jumped on last week's false media reports suggesting that our plan will ban natural gas in Ontario. That is not true. Let me be clear. We are not banning natural gas and have no intention to force people off natural gas. In fact, one of the initiatives under Ontario's historic infrastructure investment extends natural gas lines to rural and northern communities to support economic development. It's exactly the opposite of what was reported. So natural gas will continue to play a critical role in the energy mix in Ontario, even as our climate change action plan supports people and businesses in shifting away from fossil fuels. So those things are not, they are not um, in conflict with one another. We understand that this, uh, that they have to live together.
hundreds of millions or billions they're going to have to spend on upgrading the sewer system. I've already had people in my riding who've had their, their flood protection insurance cut off because insurance companies say, with increased rainfall, you're going to get flooded more often. We're not covering you anymore. Uh, these things will have profound impacts on our standard of living. Uh, Andy, you, you know about Lyme disease, and you, you've probably dealt with people who've suffered from it. Um, when I've talked to people about it, it's a, a disease that's not readily apparent when people first get the infection, and that's when it's easiest to treat, but it's hard to be certain. Later, when it's certain that people have Lyme disease, it's impossible to treat. And unfortunately, climate change, global warming is the same thing. It's not readily apparent at the beginning. It's not an everyday thing that you walk out your house and say, gee, the sky's green today, something big's happening. No, it comes at us step by step. But frankly, where we're headed right now is a world that's going to be a lot tougher to live in with a lot lower standard of living. Okay, let's hear it for you, because what you seem to be saying is, I applaud Kathleen Wynne's liberal government for dealing so dramatically with climate change, and I fully support uh, what I'm hearing today in the Globe and Mail. Uh, no, I, I'm still assessing what they've put forward. I think that the government, any government that's in power right now, has to take action on climate change. Um, whether or not this is real is another matter. Whether they've got the balance right, so they're supporting and helping people the way they need to, it's not clear to me yet from the documents I've seen. Uh, but do we need to take very substantial action on climate change? We do. Even the Conservative Party in this province has come out saying climate change is real. Uh, you had Patrick Brown saying he was in favor of, car of a carbon tax. You know, when you start hearing the, the Tories say, we support a carbon tax, you know the world's changed around you, right? Well, especially when the leader says so, but many of his uh, uh, members uh, do not yet agree with him and gasped when he made the announcement. Well, as far as I know, he's still the leader. They didn't throw him out. As far as I know, that's where that party's headed. Okay, so bottom line, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, you're saying uh, the story in the Global Mail is not pleasant. Uh, hate to spend $7 billion, uh, which we're going to extract from the uh, Ontario economy. But it has to be done. We're going to have to make the investment. And if we don't do them, Ontarians are going to pay in a very heavy and unpleasant way in the years to come. Peter, appreciate your time. Anytime, Andy. Okay, thank you. Well, I'm a little surprised at how honest he was that he supports the story in the Globe and Mail, supports what the Ontario Liberal government is doing. Very, very interesting. So one of the earlier callers said, well, if you're not going to vote for the Liberals, who are you going to vote for? Has a point. Yes, that caller did have a point. And when he originally raised it, Andy responded with something along the lines of, well, I guess we'll all have to vote for Freedom Party. In fact, that was my cue to call in, which I did. And I'd love to be, be playing that call today, but I'm going to save that one for a future show. What I really wanted to do was address the comments that we have just heard from the NDP's Peter Tabins, who was interviewed by Andy again. That was on May 16th. And I don't know if you just listened carefully to all of that, but Tabins' comparison of climate change to Lyme disease, of all things, quote, it's not readily apparent at the beginning, end quote, begs the question, the beginning of what or when? This is, this is an argument we've run into a lot on the show. 
One can pick any point in the climate history of our planet as the beginning point of climate change, which is why it would never, you know, be, quote, readily apparent to anyone living at any given period in the Earth's history, including the present. Remember we had a joke about that, people living in the Dark Ages at the time didn't know that they were actually living <laughs> in the Dark Ages. <laughs> so my question to someone like uh, Tabins and all the others that share this philosophy, why not pick the beginning of climate change as it was, say, oh, 10,000 years ago when humans had no impact on the ice sheets that covered most of North America? Or why not pick the beginning of climate change when the Earth had far more CO2 in the atmosphere than today and the whole planet from pole to pole was tropical, a time when life on this planet was teeming? Who declared it and made it mandatory that the climate started today? Or at some pre-industrial point in history when people burned coal and wood for fuel? Or that we, you know, humans should be forced to make this, the climate stand still and never allow it to change. That the very idea on its, on its own merit sounds crazy. But that's the environmentalist illusion, and it's a delusion. One that is being used to terrify voters into supporting destructive socialist policies and the destruction of their prosperity and freedom. This is a worldwide movement. And Robert, I think you're going to be getting into that whole issue in the latter half of the show, aren't you? Yeah, the United Nations people, yes. Now, the process that Tabins describes regarding climate change, quote, it comes at us step by step. Well, what does that remind me of? That reminded me of the very process by which his evil philosophy of socialism destroys society, step by step. Quote, where we're headed right now is a world that's going to be a lot tougher to live in with a lot lower standard of living, he predicts. Now, clearly, this is not a consequence of weather climate, but of the political climate, and we have to be clear on that. Just take a look at history. Look at the economies of the world today. All socialist, communist, fascist countries have a lower standard of living than any relatively free capitalist democracy sitting beside it or anywhere else in the world. And turning those free economies into stagnant and poverty-ridden economies is the political climate change that Tabins is really talking about and which he supports. That's what the UN wants to do, too. We'll hear it in their own words. This is, this is not just, uh, you know, mere speculation on our part. These are stated intentions. And to deflect attention from himself and to deny socialism's role in the process of creating poverty... He's literally blaming the Earth's climate and weather patterns for the failures of collectivism and socialism everywhere. Just blame the weather. What a way out, eh, Robert? Quote, any government that's in power must take action on climate change, end quote, insists Tabins. It, this, this part was funny, and I quote him again. Whether or not this is real is another matter. <laughs> even, even the conservative party in this province has come out and said climate change is real. We have Patrick Brown saying he's in favor of a carbon tax. Now, when you start hearing the Tories say that we support a carbon tax, you know the world's changed around you, right? <laughs> to which I respond, no, that's not right. It's totally, totally left. And here's the point. There has been no change in the positioning of the progressive conservative philosophy. Not from day one, not ever since we've been in politics, Robert. Have you noticed it? Nope. <laughs> the purpose of government is to redistribute wealth. Socialism as per past PC leader Ernie Eves, and we discussed that with Paul McKeever last week on Rob the show. Rob is moving to the left. Yep. And it's been like that since Bill Davis and David Peterson in the days of Freedom Party's founding. 
So together, Ontario's liberals, progressive conservatives, and new Democrats can collectively share the responsibility and guilt for, in the words of Tabins himself, the world that's going to be a lot tougher to live in with a lot lower standard of living, end quote. What a thing for a politician to predict and to plan for poverty instead of trying to plan to get out of it. That in and of itself is, to me, a quantum change in the thinking of politicians. No politician 30, 40 years ago would get away with a statement like that. I'm just stunned. And if he's associating the warmer southern climates with the higher degree of poverty in those warm nations, I think he hasn't looked at how much their political ideals are pretty much the same as his. So when it comes to predicting the climate of the future, and that's the political climate that is, we here on this show have been right all along. We've just been right all the way through. I can't, that's, check out our shows online. If you see any big, big changes that we were totally wrong on, bring them to our attention. But we've got a really clear record of those predictions, and anybody can see them online. And as for predicting the future of Ontario's freedom and prosperity, you know, unless more people start supporting a true alternative to the variant collectivist policies of the three statist co-parties, as I like to call them, which in Ontario is only Freedom Party, and you've got to have these alternatives in, in other places around the world too. I amazingly find myself in complete agreement with an NDP member of the legislature, because as long as we keep voting that way, quote, Ontario's going to be a lot tougher to live in with a lot lower standard of living. And I think his is a self-fulfilling prophecy and an intention. And just as politics drifts ever more into the abyss of political progressivism, it's a step-by-step process to fight the political climate change that's being wrought on Ontarians and on people around the world. So on that note, we now turn our attention to a portion of a commentary made on The Rebel uh, by Brian Lilly on May 18th, which was well before Wynne's latest false denial that natural gas was an eventual goner for Ontario homeowners. Here he is commenting on that. Ontario's Liberals deny their own green follies. I'm Brian Lilly with the Rebel.media. Ontario's Environment Minister, the radical leftist Glenn Murray, is now denying that he wants to move the province off of natural gas, even though he said that very thing in the legislature recently. Murray is at the forefront of a radical plan that we've been hearing dribs and drabs about that will spend $7 billion over the next several years and try and move us away from using natural gas to heat our homes, using internal combustion engines uh, to gasoline-run engines to move our cars and our trucks around into electric cars. Well, now, after a backlash, Murray's saying, that's not what I said. Check out this quote found in the National Post. Murray said, natural gas will continue to play a critical role in the energy mix in Ontario in the future. And beyond that, you'll have to wait and see the details. But no, we're not banning natural gas or taking it away from people. Well, let's take a look at what Glenn Murray actually said in the legislature that got tons wagging in the first place. Home heating in the future is going to come to have to come from sources other than natural gas. So, no, he didn't say in the legislature he's going to ban it. He's playing word games in, in how he selects what he's denying here. What he did say is that the province is going to have to move away from that, that we will have to move to new sources. This is part of his grand plan, the one he's keeping under wraps, the one that we're told that Ontario Liberals are actually having a big bun fight over, a big debate, because some of them, some of them actually realize this will kill the province's economy. 
Well, with the latest revelation that Murray and the Liberals want to move the province off of natural gas as a source of heat, an energy source that currently provides home heating to more than 70% of the province, or we're finding out that Union Gas is saying that will mean more than $3,000 per household on average in a given year. This is the Liberal plan. Move us away from what we're using now to their preferred option. What's that? Electricity. I don't mind telling you, I'm quite hungry. I've come a long, long way. <clears throat> you know, in my time, a, a berry that size would have been big news all over the civilized world. Excuse me, sir. Uh, sir? Perhaps curiosity has died, perhaps even courtesy has died, but I have come a long way and I would like to know a few things. Why? Well, because uh, I shall return to my time and, and my people will ask me questions. Oh, such as, uh, well, what kind of government rules your world? We have no government. Well, you must have a, um, a body of men who pass and enforce laws. Laws? There are no laws. Where do you get your food and clothing? Doesn't anybody work? No. Well, where does all that come from? It grows. It always grows. Yes, I know, but it, it must be cultivated and planted and nurtured. Um, well, unless you... Well, you, you, you mean you have an economy so well developed that you can, you can spend all your time um, studying and e experimenting, is that right? You ask many questions. Well, well, that is the only way that man has learned and developed. I wish to learn. I want to learn about you, about your civilization. Perhaps you... Do you have books? Books? Yes, we have books. Oh, wonderful. I can learn all I want about you from books. Books will tell me what I want to know. Well, well, could I see the books? They do tell me all about you. You! All of you! I'm going back to my own time. I won't even bother to tell of the useless struggle of the hopeless future. But at least I can die among men! Yeah. Uh. You're listening to Just Right, episode 455, to be precise. And you can find all of the other episodes of Just Right at our website, justrightmedia.org. That was a clip from one of my favorite stories, The Time Machine by H.G. Wells, dramatized on film by George Pal in 1960. Now, see, I would have included that in my sci-fi collection a couple weeks ago, but it was such a classic, I figured everybody had seen that. <laughs> yes, it is a classic, <laughs> yeah. and I've watched it several times. Pal's envisionment of a future of mankind consisted of two cultures of humanity. Above ground live the unthinking autonomous drones, the Eloi, 
who were bred to be slaves for those who lived underground, the brutish Morlocks. Wells and Pal's vision was prophetic. In the face of doom and destruction, the Eloi of today go willingly to the slaughter. They have rejected the history-written books and are content to frolic in the sun, taking alms from the Morlocks who fatten them up for their ultimate fate. Even when told by the visiting time traveler that they must not heed the tolling bells of the Morlocks, they dutifully march off into the Sphinx to become enslaved below ground. Today's Eloi are, I lament to say, in the majority. The Morlocks... What a great term. Maybe we should start using it. The Eloi. The Eloi, yeah. I just did start using it. Yeah, there thank you. you. Go. Thank you. I'm, I'm going to continue <laughs> using it. <laughs> and I guess Kathleen Wynne is a Morlock. <gasps> anyway. Ooh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> the Morlocks are their masters who once um, hid their agendas, but have since no longer, they no longer fear openly and tacitly telling the world of their agenda of destruction, control, and conquest. They're blatant about it. Until just a few years ago, climate change was a fraud perpetrated on the public as a way to mask a more sinister plan. Recently, however, the leaders of the United Nations, as well as their climate change alarmists, have taken off their masks and have revealed that climate change as a movement is irrelevant to their ultimate purpose of a one-world communist government with absolute control over the tiniest detail of our everyday lives. A March 29th column in Investor's Business Daily put a spotlight on one of the United Nations officials who laid bare the UN's plans to use climate change as a means to implement a worldwide communist wealth redistribution scheme. Said official, of course, is Otmar Edenhofer, designated director of the Mercator Research Institute on Global Commons and Climate Change, amongst other titles. He's an economist with a degree also in philosophy. His early boyhood passion was actually reading Karl Marx and John Dewey. And he followed that passion into, uh, into the university, taking a degree in philosophy in the uh, left-wing communist. Shouldn't even uh, be classified as philosophy. Should be classified as cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Bob. Sorry. Uh, no, no, that's okay. This is from the article. Quote, one has to free oneself from the illusion that international climate policy is environmental policy. This has almost nothing to do with the environmental policy anymore, with problems such as deforestation or the ozone hole, said Edenhofer, who co-chaired the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, Working Group on Mitigation of Climate Change from 2008 to 2015. So what is the goal of, of environmental policy, asked the article. Quote, we redistribute de facto the world's wealth by climate policy, unquote, now, how, said how can, how can you get a more blunt and open statement of what you're doing? I'll say it again. We redistribute de facto the world's wealth by climate policy. There you go. You have it. Black and white. Wealth redistribution. Also in the article... For those who want to believe that maybe Edenhofer just misspoke and doesn't really uh, mean that, consider that a little more than five years ago, he also said that, quote, the next World Climate Summit in Cancun is actually an economy summit, during which the distribution of the world's resources will be negotiated, unquote. So, Bob, there you have it. That's from the article. Uh, where was that? Um, Investors Business Daily. Investors Business Daily of March 29th. 
we, redistrib we redistribute de facto the world's wealth by climate policy. How do they do this? Well, one of the ways is called cap-and-trade, which has its goal, of course, not the reduction of CO2 emissions, but the trading in CO2. It's in the redistribution of wealth from industrializations nations to third-world nations. In Ontario, we see it done, as you mentioned before, by threats to phase out the use of natural gas to heat homes. We see it by thousands of windmills dotting the countryside about here. We see it in $400 hydro bills. But Edenhofer is not the only wannabe world overseer, Morlock, who blatantly mm -hmm. tells us of the UN's communist agenda. To quote again from the same article, quote, last year, Christiana Figueres, executive secretary of UN's Framework Convention on Climate Change made a similar statement. Quote, this is the first time in history of the mankind that we are setting ourselves the task of intentionally, within a defined period of time, to change the economic development model that has been reigning for the at least 150 years since the Industrial Revolution, unquote, she said in anticipation of last year's Paris Climate Summit. Now, that's a very significant time she's picked, uh, which that's her starting point. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. She goes on to say, quote, this is probably the most difficult task we have ever given ourselves, which is to intentionally transform the economic development model for the first time in human history. Actually, it's been done before, Christiana, at the point of a gun, always at the point of a gun. You know, there's been revolutions before to do to implement exactly what you're trying to implement, and tens of millions have died as a result of it. Thank you very much, Figueres. So, so it was successful, <laughs> because that's true. It's it, yes, she, and that's it was and changed. that's what she would regard as success too. Make yes. no mistake, I'm not joking about that. She's identifying capitalism as what has to be eliminated, because that what else is the so like a so-called reigning economic model for the last 150 years? To be clear. Capitalism is the economic system where individuals decide what to produce and what to consume. Politically, capitalism is the removal of force from trade and the economy. Those are the definitions that we always use on this show. Figueres and Edenhofer advocate for government intervention in trade. They advocate for the use of force in trade and the economy. They and people like them have decided that you and I are not capable of making decisions for ourselves and therefore must be stopped. A governing body of elites must decide what gets produced, distributed, communicated, and consumed. Now here are two clips of Edenhofer and Figueres in their own words, expanding on their now-so-overt agenda of global domination. The first clip is of Edenhofer presenting at a 2012 conference put on by the Institute for Economic Thinking, which, by the way, is an organization founded by socialist billionaire and funder of violence groups George Soros. It is followed by Figueres in conversation with Greg Dalton of Climate One of the Commonwealth Club of California. Give a listen. I would like to start with a simple observation. The simple observation is the growth story. It's the growth story that... Over the last 200 years, we have seen a tremendous increase of GDP per capita and population. And the increase of per capita of GDP and the population was basically driven by a few institutional innovations. In particular, the private property rights and competition. 
But additionally to that institutional innovations, there was a lottery prize which humankind won, which was the discovery of a stock, the stock of coal, oil, and gas. The pre-industrial economic systems heavily relied on a flow economy, on the inflow of the sun. And now humankind, after the discovery of coal, oil, and gas, was able to deal with stored solar energy. It was a stock economy. And this stock economy had a strong implication. It allows us to promote technological change and to increase economic and population growth, but it has a hidden price. And the hidden price was the increasing emissions. Now, I talked about the dangerous, how to avoid dangerous climate change. But now I would like to highlight another risk. And this is the risk of dangerous emission reduction. What do I mean with the danger of risk of uh, dangerous emission reduction? If you analyze the map, so you can see all the rich countries. But all the rich countries who have been able to escape the poverty trap, all the countries who have been able to achieve economic growth and human well-being to a remarkable extent, are the same countries who use the atmosphere in an unprecedented way. What you can see here is, this is a double logarithmic scale. Here you have the capital stock per capita and the emissions per capita. And what you can see here, it's an almost one-to-one -one relationship. If capital stock per capita has increased by 1%, this has led in the past to increase of 1% of emission per capita. It's a one-to-one -one relationship. And it seems to me this has burned into the memory of humankind that overcoming human poverty and to achieve human well-being is associated with the use of fossil fuels, with the burning of fossil fuels, with the burning of coal, oil, and gas. I would like to come to a conclusion and simply to say that we need a kind of an international governance structure. I believe the climate problem is not basically and mainly a technological problem. It's a problem of governance. First of all, we have to be successful to define a global carbon budget. We have to talk about the distribution of property rights on the atmosphere or on the climate rent. We need an institutional framework which allows us to invest the rents in a way that we can launch transformation pathways. We need collective action, collective action, and we could start from the bottom up, for example, when we start to think about linking emerging emission trading scheme, and we have to accept that we live in a polycentric world where we have no world government, where we have to think carefully, very carefully, how to link the different institutions we have. And I would like to conclude with a philosophical statement. So I grew up in the southern part of Germany, in Bavaria. And as you know, Bavaria is very famous for his philosophers. The problem is, in Bavaria, the philosophers have never written any textbooks or any articles in peer-reviewed journals. In Bavaria, philosophy is done in bars. <laughs> but nevertheless, the philosophical substance is remarkable. And I would like to tell you a story. When I studied philosophy in Munich, I attend this discussion in a beer bar. And one Bavarian said to another, look, for us in Bavaria, an anarchy would be the best government structure. 
And the other Bavarians were very silent for three minutes and said, yes, we agree, but only with a very strong anarch. <laughs> I think this is a challenge also for the international uh, institutional structure. We are almost in an anarchy and we are looking for a strong anarch. Thank you very much. Women, particularly in developing countries, are really at the forefront of negative climate impacts. They are the ones that bear the brunt. In some African countries, the food is 85% produced by women, 85% produced by women. Um, at the same time, what is very interesting is that women, if given the necessary tools, can really be little ants of change, okay? Think of, think of women in developing countries as a huge network, a huge ant colony that can really bring about the necessary change because these are the women that will make the decision about how am I going to cook? Am I going to continue to cook? I'll, I'll give you a very scary fact. 50% of women around the world, 50%, still cook on open fires. You know what an open fire is? It is three stones, three pieces of wood, and a pot on top. 50% of women around the world, that is, that is immoral. That is immoral in the year 2013 because what it means is women have to walk long distances to go and everyday longer distances to go and get the firewood. Along the path, they are raped, robbed, or something else. Then, they have to put up with all the fire because they're the ones that cook with their children. So the fire produces all of this smoke and the women are the ones that have respiratory problems and their children because of the cooking like this. And then the men still complain about the recipe, right? So they are the ones that can actually be the agents of change because they're the ones that can say, okay, yes, we have been cooking like this for years, but Given the technology, and here's where technology dissemination needs to come in, I could move to an efficient stove. I could do something very, very different. And there's some very uh, successful clean cook stove projects out there, right? Many out there. Many, many projects, and every day more, thank heavens, replacing open fires with efficient stoves. There are many projects that are replacing kerosene lamp, which is currently the light of choice in developing countries, uh, with solar um, with solar cells, um, and again, it's the women who are doing this. So the women can be very important agents of change. A related issue is uh, fertility rates and population. A lot of people in energy and environmental circles don't want to go near that because uh, it's politically charged, it's not their issue, but isn't it true that stopping the rise in population would be one of the biggest levers in driving the rise in greenhouse gases? Is that well, I mean, we all know we expect 9 billion, right, by, by 2050. Um, so, yes, obviously less people would exert less um, pressure on the natural resources. And, um, and, and that's it's So just is 9 math. billion a foregone conclusion that's like baked in, done, not going to, no way to change that? 
Well, there again, there's pressure in the system um, to go toward that. We, we can definitely change those, right? We can definitely change those numbers, um, and we really should make every effort to change the numbers because we are already today, already exceeding the planetary carrying capacity today to say nothing of adding more population that is going to really overextend our capacity. So yes, we should do everything possible, but we cannot call, fall into the very simplistic opinion of saying just by curtailing population, then we've solved the problem. It is not an either or, it is an and also. Some observations on what we just heard. Besides the sheer insanity of it, I, I apologize to our listeners. <laughs> for having them listen to that? Yes, it's one of those painful things. If you're if you if you if you're still tuned in. <laughs> they did go on but for Bob and I that is that is ear candy. That is the devil himself talking. And um well, in terms of being able to demonstrate some of what the devil himself is saying. Yes, yeah. But I just have some observations. First, let's take on Figueres' comments. Uh, she spoke last. Who amongst us thinks of people as little ants other than a megalomaniac. That's what she's thinking of people. She considers them to be ants. The women she talks about cooking on wood fires in Africa are living in the very socialistic, tribalistic, non-capitalistic, communistic countries that Figueres and Edenhofer wish the rest of the world will emulate politically. It's amazing. The technology that Figueres hopes will replace the wood stove is conceived of, financed by, produced by, and distributed by capitalists in free countries which allow business to profit from innovation. You will recall that she thanks the heavens for such technology, as if the scientists, engineers, financiers, and businessmen in capitalistic, developed countries had nothing to do with it. Thank heavens for air conditioning. Thank heavens for electric heat. Figueres is blatant that the world's population must be reduced. This is chilling stuff. What she doesn't address is who should not be allowed to reproduce in her socialist utopia. Does she plan on killing off some of the people who are alive today? She also ignores the fact that the more free and capitalist a nation is, the more stable is its population. You're not going to see population overgrowth, if you want to use that word. Frankly, I don't think you can have too much of a population. In fact, in fact, that's always been a, a problem with the West. The population declines. Well, a problem for a socialist West. Yeah. Uh, to no, the degree that a so- no, no, no. For the socialist West. It is the socialists in the West here, because we're a mixed economy. Okay. Who, who have things like the Canada Pension Plan, which is based on having a younger population come up so that they can fund the old age security for the elderly. I was referring to an earlier time before we had all those plans, <laughs> and that was when we had a problem because people were not producing enough. The average family was only producing two kids or one kid. Yes. Right? And that's what happens in the freer nations. It does happen in the freer nations. So, uh, Figueres, if you want the population to reduce, you can do it naturally, you know, through freedom, through capitalism. Now, to address a few points on Edenhofer's presentation... You will note how he identifies subtly, not explicitly, that private property rights and high gross domestic product per capita heralded with the Industrial Revolution what has become the non-issue of climate change. In other words, he's blaming them. He's blaming private property rights and competition. He says the discovery of coal, oil, and gas was 
like winning a lottery, a simple matter of luck or chance. He negates with a word the millions of man-hours of scientific inquiry and discovery which went into discovering those commodities and the millions of man-hours and ingenuity and engineering driven by the profit motive which went into technology necessary to extract these up until then useless resources and put them to use of man for man for the betterment of his condition. You said just what I was going to say. It was just like in the past when they found an oil field. They didn't have a use it for it. It was a nuisance. Right, so they set it on fire Yeah. and just let it burn. And it wasn't until technology came along that you would have a use for such product. So the idea that these things just are, exist in nature, this, this, this idea, again, it goes back to we want to live in paradise and you know, live like I don't know what they're thinking. I can't even put my mind there. Such a disconnect from reality. It is, yeah. Now, the so-called flow economy of the sun, as Edenhofer talks about, is the same economy described by Figueres. It is the economy of poverty, privation, starvation, destruction. The same economy of those women in Africa who must use wood stoves to cook their food. That's the flow economy for you, without fossil fuels. The stock economy, which Edenhofer described, is indeed a stock economy. It's a fixed amount. The world is just so big and there's just so much oil and gas and coal there. But you know something? That's not a problem. But it is this limited nature of these resources, resources which this man thinks will be our long-term undoing for some reason. He doesn't seem to consider that it is only capitalism which can transform from one limited resource into an alternative. And it does it naturally, pricing system. That's right, Bob, yes. I mean, it's not a communist demagogue up there or some sort of tin pot dictator who can come up with an alternative to coal, oil, or gas. It's a scientist. It's an engineer. It's a businessman. It's a profiteer. These are the people who make the changes. But none of them have their effect unless they're in a free market. That's That's right. This is key. Every communist country has those people, too, to disenslave them. That's all. When and if coal, oil, and gas become exhausted... Edenhofer is incapable, Figueres is incapable of conceiving that individuals will be just as resourceful in developing replacements. Edenhofer must have a centrally planned world government, a unicentric power, to see us through what has yet to become a problem. Coal, oil, and gas are so plentiful the price has plummeted. I would, I would contest your statement that he's incapable of seeing it. I think he sees it perfectly clearly. Oh, but you're going to be but calling uh, him evil then. No, but, un- but he understands that would get in the way of his power trip. Th- that's all it is. They I'm know being, exactly what they're saying. And it's, be, I it's, guess it's, I'm being ki- too kind. You're being extraordinarily kind. I'm sitting here, gee, you're being real nice to this guy because the guy is the devil incarnate in what he's saying. All of his things are pure rationalizations. They're pure BS. You're, you're absolutely right, Bob. His and, philosophy and, has, has, been res- has resulted in the deaths of hundreds of millions of people. And he's continuing it. And, and he, pr- pr- oh, I just, <laughs> where's my gun? The price of emissions, Edenhofer mentions, is not a price, it is a consequence. Again, what he fails to understand in his superficial analysis is that fully 100% of the carbon bound up in the coal, oil, and gas was taken from the atmosphere at a time, as you pointed out earlier, Bob, when life on Earth was plentiful. The burning of fossil fuels is simply putting back into the atmosphere the carbon that was taken from it eons ago. CO2 is necessary for life. His graph of countries aligned in order of capital stock per capita and emissions per capita, is misinterpreted. He's wrong. He sees the higher GDP countries as having higher GDP because of their emissions or use of fossil fuels. In fact, 
The use of fossil fuels is a consequence of something much more important which Edenhofer can't understand. Economic freedom. It is economic freedom which drives GDP and standard of living, not necessarily fossil fuel emissions. It is economic freedom which allowed for the use of fossil fuel use. You could have used that same graph before the use of fossil fuels. A hundred years ago, we would have followed the same graph. You would have had the uh, English-speaking, predominantly Commonwealth countries up there, Canada, United States, New Zealand, Australia, and some of the Western European countries. They were the highest GDP before the use of fossil fuels. The rest of them, the communist tribalistic countries, were at the bottom. Along comes fossil fuels, you've got the same graph. That same graph would be the same if it was plotted where GDP and the, and the degrees to which each country was politically free. At the top were the same outperformers of the world. Great observation. Yeah. What's at the bottom of the graph? Ethiopia, Bangladesh, Egypt, India. So you don't see the conclusion there? You don't, you don't, he draws a false conclusion as to the cause of the outperforming country's higher GDP. Fossil fuels, he says. No, freedom, I say. From this false conclusion, he determines we need a kind of international governance structure, a single world government. His bureaucratic language is Orwellian. He talks of property rights on the atmosphere. What nonsense! Rights are held by people, not physical entities, not nature. When he says we need an institutional framework which allows us to invest the rents in a way we can launch transformation pathways, he's already clear by what he means by, uh, by institutional framework, a single world governing body. By transformations, he means economic revolution. To put it in more direct terms, Edenhofer is saying we need a global communist revolution. By the way, he's an economist, so he talks about people in like, as statistics. Ants. Yeah, ants. <laughs> His amusing philosophic concluding story reveals a chilling intent. To paraphrase it, an anarchy would be fine uh, for our government structure. Yes, we agree, but only with a very strong anarch. <laughs> I had to laugh out loud. When it was I heard amusing. That. <laughs> it was amusing. He's speaking of a dictatorship, a worldwide dictatorship which will replace freedom and capitalism with a single state control, all in the name of carbon dioxide, the stuff that you breathe out. Note that both Figuera and Edenhofer often speak of people not as individuals, but as per capita, or as ants. They refuse to see us as individuals with minds of our own, with choices of our own to make. They fancy themselves as courtiers to future demagogues. Now, the interesting thing for me, being a student of psychology and politics, is why hasn't this kind of incited, uh, inciting warmongery being splashed across the front pages of every newspaper in the free world? Why haven't people called upon their governments to quit the United Nations in protest of their agenda? Why hasn't the United Nations building been set upon by crowds with the same fervor that George Soros crowds set upon Donald Trump's speeches? The answer is that, in the whole, the public school system has done its job. We've become sheep for the slaughter. We are the Eloi, marching off to the Sphinx in the wood to become slaves to the Morlocks. Wonderful. Not that I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> but I am looking no. forward to our next episode of Just Right, which I think we should do in an anarchistic way. Robert and I won't be here for it, but we'll do the show. <laughs> Does that make sense? Thank no. heavens for just right. So join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, and hey, be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white, under the bed.
get close, everything will be alright. I know the National Union of Teachers are scared stiff that will expose the fact that school leavers, oh, while of course being tremendously integrated socially and creatively aware... Can't actually read, write or do sums, yeah. <laughs> but Charles has got the education secretary worried that the colleges for further education will be taken over by the services and actually used for teaching people. We can't have that. Uh, <laughs> so what about your man at employment? Oh, it's the same problem. You see, the truth is the unions won't stand for kids coming in and undercutting them on community work. Yes. I don't think we need to bring the truth in at this stage. 